2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast outward, boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled to the world, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, for this chance to gather together as the body of Christ. And we thank you that you have reconciled us. You have brought us close to you by the blood of Christ. And so, God, I just, um, I just praise you for that. I praise you that as the creator of the world, Lord, that you're not done creating new things, creating new hearts, God, and changing lives. And I just pray right now that as we um, dig into your word, Lord, that you would just um, meet us in this place, Father, that um, not a heart would leave here unchanged, God. And so we thank you, and we praise you, and we worship you because you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, dear. I say dear because that's my wife, for those of you that don't know. <laughs> so if you remember last week, and, and here's another fun fact is we're attempting to, and we are successfully uh, alliterating all these titles for the whole Bible, which is just ridiculous. Um, and so last week, as Anthony taught, it was Bedlam Body and belief in a church that has kind of gone rogue and a little bit wild and has its issues. And I'd add a fourth to it because of what Anthony confessed by the end of the sermon, and that's bad attitudes uh, for his attitude of how he felt last week. <laughs> and I also recognize that Anthony and Beth are leaving tomorrow on a two-weeker to uh, Ireland and Scotland, and so he's feeling extra loose right now. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm asking for all of your patience with him <laughs> and me as I try to endure the next 35 to 40 minutes of heckling. 
If you want a title for today, it's Doctrine and Drama. Anthony talked about church wounds and moving from hurt to hope, and, and it's a bit of the same. How, how do we do that? And you really could just listen to last week's message again, because it's a lot of similar things that are continuing in the life of the Corinthian church. In Paul's letter, we see that some had changed and repented, and hallelujah, praise the Lord for that, while others had doubled down on their accusations against Paul, against um, his apostleship, his gifting, his qualifications, all of that. And there's an interesting seven-year history that Paul has with this church. Around 50 to 52 AD, these uh, dates are all a little bit flexible because it was 2,000-ish years ago, Paul planted and established the church in Corinth, and you see that in Acts chapter 18, as Anthony mentioned last week. He spent a year and a half there before um, kind of all hell broke loose as the Jewish party looked to drive him out of the city. Then in 55 or 56-ish AD, he had a second visit to them, which in chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, he describes as, as painful. And at this point, Paul is now in Macedonia getting ready for a third visit. His plan is that his ministry is going to move kind of north and west towards Spain. If you, in Rome, if you can remember Mike's map from a few weeks ago, he's a serious cartography guy, our, our, resident, our cartographer in residence, uh, Mike Gaston. Uh, so Paul is in kind of, you know, uh, ancient Near East, Greece, and he's moving up towards Rome and Spain. That's his desire, and he pens this letter to prepare them for that visit. The letter of 2 Corinthians in its 13 chapters does not have the same level of structure that 1 Corinthians has as he kind of ebbs back and flow from the joy that he has in this church and the confidence he has in Christ's work in their midst as well as a, a lot of pain and sorrow and hurt and difficulty there. Because Paul, the apostle, with these people specifically endured a lot of criticisms, a lot of misunderstanding, and a lot of pain that's sprinkled all throughout the letter. I'll give you a, a quick overview from Paul Barnett's commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says this, They have been ready to believe a whole range of criticism, criticisms against him, of being worldly and irresolute, of moral cowardice in writing instead of coming. Kind of, say it to my face. His lack of inner strength, of being demoralized and theologically deviant, of being an imposter, of being corrupt and exploitative, of not being a true minister of Christ, of being weak in speech when present and powerful, only by letter when absent, of being a fool, even mad, of breaching convention or of craftiness and declining their financial support, and of lacking mystical and miraculous credentials of ministry, Throughout this letter, Paul is forced to defend his doctrines, his ministry, and his character. And I've spent about the last two weeks of my life kind of reading through, chewing on this letter. I've just thought over and over, can't the guy take a hint and move along? Like, he's endured so much from these people in his multiple visits. It's believed that he wrote about four letters. We have a collection of two of them here. Can't the guy just 
take a hint and move on. By Felicia. <laughs> or just zing it back to them. Again, this probably reveals more about my heart and and all that. And at the same time, it makes me so incredibly grateful for being able to pastor within this church. It's like, oh, I got it so easy compared to the apostle. And if y'all want to keep it that way, that's great. You know, this (laughs) mutuality here. But what Paul is doing is, is I continue to think through that is is so important to our understanding in interacting with Jesus and his church today. And this concept, for many of us, is foreign in a consumer society. A consumer society that has infiltrated its way into the life of the church. And and I'll be careful there, because I'm not saying every single one of you are consumers. Or if you're at Union, kind of going, well, we were at a previous church, and now we're looking at this church that I'm angry, like, there's conversations to be had around that, but we, we have to be honest with ourselves that the consumerism of our time and our day has infected our hearts and our relationships, and that many of us, rather than dealing and doing the hard work of relationships with people, we're quick to write folks off. We're quick to bounce. And again, there's a a blessing that if or when things go sideways and there is good reason to leave a local congregation, that we live in a town that has a good chunk of churches. I mean, Ken from Quad Cities here. Hi. And I I don't think he's like secret agenting it, you know, going like, hmm, let's see who's here that we could add to our team over at the, no. Like, there's camaraderie and there's uh, togetherness and unity within the church here in Prescott in certain degrees. But there's a lot that we can take away from this letter of how to interact with Jesus and his church. And really, foundationally, how doctrine, that is our thoughts and beliefs in God, ought to shape and create and transform our lives with God. So, the theory is this, that if you have roots in Jesus, there will be fruit in life. If you have roots in Jesus, there will be fruit in life. And I'm stealing that from the Lord himself. A tree will be known by its fruit. And he, and, and Paul, and the writers of the New Testament, and we have the Bible as a whole, is, it can give us doctrine that helps us deal with drama, not detach from it. And I'm going to use the body metaphor that Paul and Anthony used last week. If that's believed, if we truly believe that God's church is a body and Jesus is the head, if the body metaphor is believed, then the way in which we live is love. And we see this in chapter number five is Paul says the source from which he is doing everything in his ministry, everything in his life, everything in his preaching and teaching and discipling, it's driven really by two things, the fear of the Lord in verse 11 and the love of God in verse 14. Paul is driven by the fear of the Lord and the love of God. Those are the main motivators by which he is uh, going out into the world and doing what he's doing. And those two things often seem somewhat incongruous. How can fear and love coexist at the same time and and be a healthy, motivating, driving force in a life? Again, Paul Barnett from the Bible Speaks Today commentary series, he says, how is it possible to be motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ? Are not fear and love irreconcilable? 
It all depends on a proper understanding of fear and love, which it should be noted are not opposites. In the Bible, fear is not cringing terror, but holy reverence. And love is not romantic feelings, but sacrificial care. The two words are consistent and reconcilable. Indeed, the fear of the Lord and awareness of the love of Christ fit perfectly together and provide the true motive for Christian ministry. So we've seen those themes all throughout Scripture, this idea of God, you know, living in the fear of the Lord. We've talked about that being in awe, a reverence, a worshipful understanding and obedience to who God is and how we're called to live. And then as Jesus kind of shrinks down all of the law, he says it boils down to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. If we are living in true fear of the Lord, then the result of that is a love for people. What the apostle shows is that truth in doctrine is not being able to regurgitate the right information about a thing. That's indoctrination. Maybe you've been raised in that. It's a real knowing and being known by God. A a truth that moves from the head to the heart to the hands that's all-encompassing. You don't have to show your hands, but think, in your upbringing, for those of you that have been a part of this thing called church and Christianity, how many of you it was just simply about believing the right things? Kind of you had, you know, the, the cosmic scantron test. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the blank. A, life. B, hope. You get the point. Many of us have experienced kind of an an understanding of Christianity that is just simply in the brain and what you need to know. And so if you can regurgitate the, the right theological facts, the the right doctrinal truths, then you're good. And I don't know about you, but my own experience in growing an understanding of doctrine is, is a funny one because oftentimes, and I, and I look in the mirror first when I say this, as I grew an understanding of doctrine, I became more of a jerk. Again, we're... You didn't even live here during that time, bro. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, 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 thank you. There, there's a joke that it is called the cage stage. When somebody goes from kind of their childhood understanding of Jesus into like a deeper dive It's a cage stage, and that is you need to be in the cage until you're out of that stage to where you can actually love people. And as Anthony said last week, many of us carry wounds from folks that I've inflicted wounds. I I don't exempt myself from that. And I've received wounds from people where I don't follow the doctrinal path exactly to the T. And then you look at the Bible and you go, well, I thought the main motivator for all this is love, not pride and ego and rightness and all of that. And so, again, how do we carve this path forward well? Again, when when true fear is known, love is going to be lavished in life. When we are controlled and compelled by Christ, it, it does something in the entirety of our lives. It doesn't 
leave us as a more prideful version of ourselves. It, it doesn't give us the Bible from, you know, a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path into, you know, a sword by which we slay other people. The presence of doctrine doesn't drive out drama. In, in fact, if it's seen wrongly, it can create more. But living from the good news of Jesus keeps drama from being debilitating in life in a church. If we are going to be a church that is free from the tentacles of drama, now, again, there is no perfect church, and especially any church that I'm a part of, and especially any church that I'm in leadership of, that it's just not going to be perfect. I'm aware of that, but, but I believe that God's people can be free from the tentacles that often hold a people back in the mire when they're living from right doctrine, and in the measure of that is the love in which uh, we show and exemplify that towards one another and receiving it as well. That's the path forward. The new identity that Jesus gifts his people and integrates them into his family, his body, then brings about a renewed perspective and renewed activity in life. There's this complete reorientation that followers of Jesus are to go through in being in Christ. And that's what Paul says in verse 16 through 20. Look at all this stacking of therefores, therefores. And it's really therefore, like, since God has done all of these things, so what? Who cares? What does that look like in a life? From now on, therefore, therefore what? Since Christ died for all, that those who might live no longer for themselves, but for him whom the, their sake he died and was raised. From there on, they, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the identity we are gifted in Jesus. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Then what does he do? gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You kind of get this, at least I get this image, whenever I read about ambassadors is the you know, limo in a foreign land with the little flag up on the front, that that individual is there representing, they're an ambassador for their country of, of who they are, how they roll, what they're to be about in the midst of the world. And it's so wild that God could have chosen anything he wanted to transform the world and get his message out, my mind goes to, you know, rent one of those Skyrider planes, you know, and ride it in the sky so everybody could see it, or, you know, just overtake Facebook ads and make them into that. I don't know. But in God's providence, he goes, no, I'm going to use people. I'm going to bring a people together to me in this new and renewed family. I'm going to reconcile what, this, what, what the fall broke in Genesis chapter 3 
through Jesus and through the cross, I'm going to mend that. That, that broken relationship vertically, that broken, those broken relationships horizontally, I'm going to bring that together in this new family that is the church. And those people, those imperfect broken people, are going to be the messengers in the world. And you and I go, God, I thought you could have picked a better plan. But what's wild is that it's worked. It's met us. It's lasted for these 2,000 years. And, and God's plan and his providence still goes out into the world. Again, we need this desperately, that God has done this in Jesus because that then drives our lives. The only way that the church is motivated rightly and fully for mission in the world is not by good speeches, it's not by guilt and shame, it's motivated by love of seeing how Jesus has met us. Again, God could have done anything to save or destroy the world, but what did he do? He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He, he comes alongside broken sinners and offers grace and truth and resurrection power. And then he equips them and sends them in that truth, in that perspective, out into the world. The only way the church is sustained and motivated for mission in the world today, that is to share and show the good news in life, is when the church is focused on who is really king, who really is Lord, who really is savior and sustainer, and that's Jesus. And he closes this section by saying in verse 21, for our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange of some of what was happening on the cross, that Jesus is our substitute, that Jesus is our representative, that Jesus is our savior. That the Lamb of God, who is sinless and perfect, takes away the sin of the world. And if you think that all of that is true, then why isn't it automatic? Why do we still struggle? Why are we carrying wounds, dealing with drama, guilt from past failures? And Paul would say it's because we're in this in-between. And the already not yet is the theological term of the kingdom. We have to realize not just where we are, but when we are. Yes, Jesus has come. He has died. He has rose again and gifted his spirit to his church. His kingdom has been brought forth. But has it fully arrived? I don't know about your life, but not in mine. And that doesn't give us a defeatism spirit. But again, it orients us to know when we are in the world, that it's not yet fully arrived and inaugurated. And what Paul and Jesus would tell us, that we still have a battle raging with the world, that is a system and structure that is opposed to God and his kingdom. We have our own battle with our flesh in those areas of our life that are not yet fully sanctified towards God. And on top of all that, there's an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy that is waging war against our soul and the church. The promise Jesus gives is the gates of hell will not prevail against his work. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But again, when are we? We're in a battle. 
And that's not to cause an unhealthy fear or alarmist mentality, but again, to orient us rightly for the world that we are in. There is a real fight. There is a real battle. And alongside all of that, we can be sustained in healthy ways. Because alongside all the pressure and the warfare that we face, there is a power to experience and live from the promises of God. We've been gifted, to put it in technological terms, a completely new operating system that will still experience some virus and attacks and malware and bloatware and all the other wares that make life frustrating. The printer's still not always working, right? That's when you know the kingdom of God has arrived is when your printer works all the time as it should. So I want to do this with the little bit of remainder of our time here is look at how Paul applies some of the doctrine to some of the drama of life. And we'll look at three different categories. And hopefully from that gather how we too can live in right ways from proper doctrine for proper living. First, salvation informs suffering. I'm going to read a little bit of an extended passage. You can look at it in your Bible, or it'll be up on the screen in chapter 4, verse 7 through 18, where Paul gives us a glimpse into the difficulties of his ministry and how he stays sane and holy and joyful in it. But we have this treasure, that is the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring, with, bring us with you into his presence." For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How was Paul sustained in the suffering that he faced? Most of us can't necessarily fully Imagine the degree of difficulty that he endured. How was he sustained in suffering? Salvation. Salvation in the, in the past tense of what Christ had done. Salvation in the future tense of what Christ will do. Did you not notice he goes, he's going to bring us into his presence altogether. He's going to make all things new. And that salvation promise, past 
and future shapes his hope in the present. Tim Keller says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Suffering can refine us rather than destroy us because God himself walks with us in the fire. You and I, in the midst of pain, want to go inward and we want to isolate. That is our very human tendency when we are in pain. Physically, emotionally, relationally. It's, it's as though the body is protecting itself and going. People aren't good. They aren't safe. You've been hurt by them before. You'll be hurt by them again. Close up. Don't open up. And what we see is that Jesus kindly and gently and knowingly meets us in the pain. He, he puts his eyes on us and sees us with, with a gaze that only he can give. He says, I know, and I'm with you in that, and I'm alongside you as long as it takes to get out of this Jesus is there. And so for your present suffering, salvation informs it. Again, looking to the past of what Jesus has done in the cross and resurrection and looking towards the future of what he's promised to bring. And that roots us and grounds us and settles us where we are to suffer well. Salvation informs suffering. Next, because it's in the letter, the grace of Jesus drives generosity. There's a lot of talk in this book about money. Um, and there's a lot of misunderstanding that this church had with Paul about him not taking some of their money earlier. And they're, what's up with that? And then he's coming back and he's preparing him, saying, well, I'm going to be taking a collection for the church uh, in Macedonia. And some, uh, he was taking a collection from a group of churches that was going to be to serve the brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And so it's this funny, like, back and forth. And again, this is one of those books that if you've ever seen televangelists... Um, like asking for money, they, they like 2 Corinthians because there's God loves a cheerful giver is in there. And, and, and I'll just use uh, one short verse, but this is the foundational point of what drives generosity for Christians. Chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That verse has been so misused and abused because what Paul is talking about is salvation and a richness of life. He's not necessarily talking about material wealth, but what he does is use that verse in the core, again, doctrine of what Jesus has done in the cross and resurrection of offering salvation. In the incarnation, meaning that the, the Son of God took on flesh, entered into humanity, and gives this grace, this undeserved gift to people, that's the core factor of why anybody gives any money at any point in time. And, and I'm not going to get 
on a high horse about it. If you know me or you know this church, we attempt to be sensitive around this because of the gross misuse that has happened throughout time. But in our church and in our lives, we're called to live from a belief in generosity, in seeing who God is and what he's done in Jesus. Generosity is the number one tool of what drives out the idol of greed in our lives. And I'll bash for a second on my own generation because, you know, in looking at all this, I'm, you know, doing, looking at the, the data of generosity and Christians and atheists and all that. And, and Mark Twain has a famous quote about, you know, lies, dang lies and statistics. So take it all with a grain of salt. But uh, yeah, millennials, it's reported that 84% of millennials who if you know millennials, there's like a real high value of doing good socially and, you know, when uh, caring for people and all of that. 84% of millennials uh, give less than $50 a year to charity. And as you look at age, the older people become typically the more generous they are in what they give. Part of that is just life of, you know, millennials also, and here I am defending myself, have lived through, you know, recessions and 9-11 and the economic collapse and all of the last 20 years, which has made wealth giving or wealth generating that was earlier much more difficult. There's that, but also it's, it's one of those things that it's like, y'all a bunch of hypocrites, and I, this pointing is to a mirror that's looking back at me. So, all of that to say, for young or old, the grace of Jesus is what is called for in, in generating generosity in our lives. Randy Alcorn has a little book called The Treasure Principle on Money, and he has this quote, which I appreciate, and he references 2 Corinthians, so it's kind of a two for two. Our giving is a reflexive response to the grace of God in our lives. It doesn't come out of our all truly altruism or philanthropy, it comes out of the transforming work of Christ in us. God's grace in action. Our giving is the reaction. We give because he first gave to us. The greatest passage on giving in all scripture ends not with, congratulations on your generosity, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gifts. 2 Corinthians 9.15. And he gives, I like this metaphor, is thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. And so if or where there is a struggle for generosity, the heart has to go towards what or who am I looking at, depending on, looking to impress, etc. We all struggle. And, and again, we're in a consumer culture where a lot of life in its value is, is built on accumulating more. It's the bigger barns mentality that Jesus talked about in one of his parables. And the way in which that is driven out of a heart is through generosity. And I'll also offer up this. There's so many different roadblocks to why generosity might not be happening in life. And if you find yourself in a place where you're debilitated by debt or had medical bills that, that came up that you weren't expected and you need help with any of that, budgeting, planning, like again, that's what the church is for. There ought not to be any shame in that, if you need help, we have people in our church that are equipped to help you within that. And so again, if we are a body, and if you're in a place where you need help, 
get some help. Without shame, without guilt, without anything. And the win isn't like, we're going to get you to a place where you can give 10%. Woo-wee! Like, we want to be in a place where we're a healthy church together. And how we handle our lives, and how we handle our purity, and how we handle our suffering, and how we handle our finances. And finally, and this is probably most difficult, and how we handle forgiveness. Finally, faith frees us to forgive. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. I would have loved to be in on those church meetings to know exactly what's going on there. So that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul is showing, because Christ has forgiven us, our calling is to forgive one another. And both of his letters and his life and ministry testify to that. And in that, he's saying a a, a few things, one of which is this, that the enemy would like to debilitate the people of God with drama by causing unforgiveness or, or putting up a wall and barrier to forgiveness in the life of God's people. Paul is showing the path forward towards freedom and life together is forgiveness. This is developed fuller, uh, more fully in Ephesians and Colossians. And I want to give, um, because of time, I'm just going to do the L. Gregory Jones quote, okay? And so L. Gregory Jones, he has a very thick book that was recommended to me about four years ago in particular time that was very helpful. The book is Embodying Forgiveness. It's a really, really good deep dive on it. He says this, forgiveness is not so much a word spoken, an action performed, or a feeling felt as it is an embodied way of life in an ever-deepening friendship with the triune God and with others. As such, a Christian account of forgiveness ought not simply or even primarily be focused on the absolution of guilt. Rather, it ought to be focused on the reconciliation of brokenness, the restoration of communion with God, with one another, and the whole creation. Forgiveness is a way of life for followers of Jesus. And at least in my own life and experience, the only way that happens is by remembering who Jesus is and what he's done for me and for us. Gone through a couple things in my life, as all of you have. The stories we could tell of the wrong we've experienced and, when we're honest, the wrongs we've committed against others, our need to forgive others and our need to ask for forgiveness from others, And I hope many of us have experienced the power that comes when we embody forgiveness as a way of life, not based on, well, I just need to feel better, and there's this cliche about drinking the poison, hoping it kills the other person. That's, you know, uh, what unforgiveness is. And Like, Jesus has forgiven us and leads us in a new way as his people. So I don't know the bitterness that you're holding on to, though I know, you know, I got a couple of my preciouses. 
that need to be cast back to Jesus again and again and again? What is it for you? Who is it for you? Who is that person? What was that saying? What was the sentence that sticks in your craw and has devastated parts of your life because you haven't let that go to Jesus? What do you need to let go to Jesus today? Again, not just for some therapeutic thing, but because of who Jesus is, of what he's done and what he's calling us into. If we had more time, I'd take you to Isaiah 55, our small group gospel community is going to be there tonight in the book Gentle and Lowly where he talks about God's thoughts not being our thoughts, his ways not being our ways, and and we go, oh yeah, because he just works everything out. But the context of that is talking about sinners that turn to him and the pardon that he freely and fully gives. That kind of pardon is God's thoughts not being our thoughts, his ways not being our ways. And it's in that that we need to, to remember and rest so that we might be able to gift that to others and ask for it where we need it. And again, I, again, speaking from my own life, that doesn't mean every single relationship in your life is going to be fully reconciled. But to the degree that you can live at peace and offer and be open towards reconciliation, that's the call. Again, there's, there's also, and this is where pastoral help and professional counseling comes in, of boundaries and what's healthy around all of that, sure. But the default factor in an operating system that we've been given in Christ is that of forgiveness. Because when you look at the cross and what Jesus has done and who he is, it eliminates every single excuse that I would offer. It eliminates every, yeah, but, no. And yes, again, context and complexity and there's work behind it all, but when you see, focus, meditate on God's grace and the way he has treated us in Christ, it changes our posture towards all. And so my hope is for us increasingly as a church that we would take the good news of Jesus with all of its promises and implications and press that into the places where there's pain, where there's unsettledness, where there's discomfort, where there's need, where there's broken relationship and see how this works, that we are gifted this truth of the gospel, that from that we develop this system and everybody's got some sort of doctrine. We develop a healthy doctrine out of God's word in the work of Christ to deal with the drama in our lives. Because again, if we have our roots in Jesus, there will be fruit in life. Because if the body metaphor is to be believed, then love is to be lived and lavished out in the world. You see that in the life of Jesus. Paul the Apostle has given us an example. And to close, look how he wraps up this letter to a hot mess of a church that has accused him of so much. He says this, finally, brothers, Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask that where we need your grace, truth, and help, we would apply this good news there. That where we've been hiding or harboring pain, unforgiveness, suffering, that we would be emboldened today to step into your community a little bit more fully and you would 
Help us as a community to be a place of healing and hope all together. And so we need you. We thank you that your spirit empowers us and that we have your promises to cling to, to live this life well. As we respond, would you continue this work? In Christ's name we pray, amen.